Hello, this is Roberta Fallon, and you're listening to ArtBlog Radio. Thanks for joining in. Today I'm here with Ken Wong. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Um, I'm at Ken's studio in Haverford, Pennsylvania, and we're talking to Ken today about many things, but we want to focus in particular on his new book, which is called Everything is Relevant. Writings on Art and Life, 1991 to 2018. That's a 27-year span of writing. Now, you're an artist, a curator, um, a public artist, as well as a writer. You've been writing for many, many years for publication, and this book is 362 pages long. So, wow, congratulations on that. Um, Let's step into the book itself right away. Mm -hmm. And your, your choice, I assume you wrote the title of the book. Yes. Okay, because not all authors can do that. So relevancy and art and life, those are words I want to focus on mm -hmm. because I think they're illustrative of all of your thinking on art and life. Mm -hmm. So everything mingles, past, present, future, um, place, mingles with other place. You are from Vancouver, you're now in Philadelphia, you travel the world. So talk about a little bit about relevance of everything. I know that's a very big question, but... Well, relevance is just a substitute um, for um, another term, contingency, hmm. meaning that um, as an artist, um, I see uh, all um, possible subject matters that are out there in the world, and uh, I don't see uh, anything that cannot be and should not be uh, not be uh, considered as uh, potential artistic content. Wow! So politics. So you're not talking exclusively cause and effect, though. I mean, what no, you just I, said is much more nuanced. Yeah, well, I would say it's more, um, yeah, it's not as uh, taxonomized. It's not uh, following any kind of, uh, you know, bracketed path mm -hmm. of, uh, of specialized discourse. Uh, I'm very interested in uh, looking at the uh, operations of art from a very holistic point of view and uh, and from a very embodying point of view and I think uh, embodiment is a is a sense of uh, you know of who one is as a human being um, in the world and as such uh, it uh, is inclusive of uh, every everything that constitutes the world so it's not so much about uh, you know nuance but about that you know, in the, there are a lot of rules in terms of what what uh, is acceptable or even suitable or adequate content for art. Uh, you know, even though we, we even though the, the art does cover a lot. You but, really think there are rules oh, today? Yeah, sure. Oh, sure. I suppose there are um, all kinds of rules in terms of how you say something, why this proper address, uh, and so on. Those are rules are, are not announced, certainly, but there are always rules at any given time. And the rules are, are, are favor certain, uh, let's say, people over other people. There's no doubt about that. It's better today than it was uh, 30 years ago, and certainly better than you know, 50 years ago, mm -hmm. right? But they were, they were nonetheless rules. Wow. 
Yeah, there are rules, and you're absolutely right about that. So you're talking about a holistic and embodiment and humans and art. And I want to go back and just introduce you properly because mm -hmm. we kind of skipped right into the book without introducing you. You're an artist, mm -hmm. public artist, writer, curator, chair of fine arts at the University of Pennsylvania's Stuart Weitzman School of Design. And people listening, you may know Ken Lum as the co-founder with Paul Farber of Monument Lab, which is a Philadelphia-based art, history, and civic engagement. Can we call it yes. civic engagement project? Begun in 2012, shortly after you were, in fact, very shortly after you arrived in Philadelphia from Vancouver. Um, British Columbia, which is where you're from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, Monument Lab, let's talk about that for a moment mm -hmm. because that's been, that's had a rather public presence mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. Describe what you did in 2012 and 13 to organize public discourse about monuments and why. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I had just uh, moved from Vancouver to uh, Philadelphia at that time and was taken by the uh, monumental landscape of uh, Philadelphia. You know, is this going to be a problem? The, the I think we can tone it down. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, that is the, you know, the inventory of uh, statuary and markers and plaques and, and even uh, murals that, uh, that, that dot the, the city. And I was very interested in it, not just in terms of uh, the inventory, but the um, hierarchy in terms of, you know, we obviously we, we uh, ascribe uh, greater value to marble and bronze and lesser value to markers, lesser value again to a little plaque and, and so on, right? And um, I was interested in the kind of unevenness of, of that, right? I've said this story many times in terms of how on my uh, first, in my first few days here in Philadelphia, I, I lived very near the um, uh, Billy Holiday uh, marker, and uh, you know, it was a, obviously a great, great Philadelphian, needless to say, who has a marker um, but has no statue, and, mm -hmm. and I compared it to um, John Wanamaker's uh, statue on the apron of uh, City Hall. Not that John Wanamaker doesn't deserve a statue, but certainly, uh, but I was trying to wrestle with why Billie Holiday never got one, right? And, uh, and soon you discover how, uh, you know, the power structure historically of the city and how uh, racialized uh, even the, you know, so-called, uh, the, the assumption of a neutrality of statuary that comprises the city is. Talk a little bit about contemporary monuments because when I think of statuary, I think of the great 19th century statues on the parkway, you know, George Washington on his horse mm. and all those uh, Revolutionary War mm. monuments, which were of their era mm. and monumentalized heroes of mm. that era that were, you know, hierarchical. Of mm. course, there were no African Americans and nothing like that. Mm. But contemporary art came in and I know it's very complicated by economics and whatnot, but people started to expect abstract art in their public plazas. 
Um, or pop art came along, mm -hmm. and we have the clothespin, mm -hmm. which is a monumental mm -hmm. clothespin, mm -hmm. what it is. So how do you think, or do you think it had any effect, this sort of modernizing of art and getting away from statues and into more abstract kind of art? Did that favor the hierarchy, or...? Um, I'm not sure that there's... How, how approximate the two forms of uh, approaches to um, art is, you know, the representation on, and the abstract. I would say that there was a, a certain moment in time with uh, what became well known as a crisis of representation, which was really about a kind of philosophical aporia or doubt in terms of all manifestations uh, through depictive forms. And rightly so, right? Because it was about a questioning of, you know, um, the truth that previously was just assumed and unchallenged. And, uh, and that, of course, um, didn't just take place in terms of statuary. It took place in literature. It took place in, in movies. It took place in terms of television, uh, news broadcasts, uh, and such. Of course, ironically, now we, now we live in this kind of Trumpian era of uh, fake news and, and, and uh, you know, all these... Uh, all the things that we thought we were, uh, you know, we had uh, done away with and see, seen as something in the past, and so on. But um, so I think uh, like abstract forms kind of, uh, and that's a very difficult topic because abstract forms came about as a kind of challenge uh, on some degree, but also because of the ambiguity of abstract forms in, in to the extent that they don't actually have to say anything specific in a, in a, you know, lucidly uh, recognizable way. Um, it also, they can act as ciphers, right? And they could, and, and certainly corporate interests understand the value of abstract art because it, it uh, doesn't, it's not necessarily challenging in terms of any content. There's non-controversial. So in a way that it expunges explicit um, questions about, you know, how, narr how historical narratives are formulated and uh, through abstract form, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult question because it's, it, it's two things. On the one hand, it was a challenge to representational systems. On the other hand, it's the displacement of representational systems by abstract uh, rep uh, systems, non-objective uh, art. Uh, also meant that um, the question of what was actually said was deeply ambiguous. Right, which served a lot of people very well, like you mentioned the mm. corporate interests mm. who could just mm. plop an abstract of mm. Richard Serra in front mm. of their, mm. you know, plaza, their building, and no one was challenged mm. by it. In fact, well, they might be overwhelmed by well, it. Well, it would be, you could even argue that, you know, the musculature, uh, I mean, I like Richard Serra's art, but uh, the musculature of a uh, Serra work, uh, you know, in terms of its uh, explicit uh, announcement of its own material composition and, um, and even a kind of machismo, let's face it, in terms of the mass and weight Absolutely. And, and the labor involved in, in, in making and installing the work um, is, a, is a perfect mirror of the corporate structure. It is. You're so right about that. Huh. Wow. Okay. Where do we go from there? Um, you have made monuments yourself. 
if we can just get into that for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, I saw one when I happened to be fortunate enough to go to Vancouver, um, your East Van, mm -hmm. which is not really abstract, but describe what that monument monumentalized mm -hmm. for you. Well, the official name of that piece is called uh, Monument for East Vancouver. Uh, referring to uh, the half of Vancouver that was traditionally the uh, working class and multi-ethnic half of the city. The city is historically and still is um, deeply bifurcated between uh, a much wealthier half and a much poorer half. That's the half I grew up in. And so, um, and Monument for East Vancouver uh, derives from, um, it's actually a work of quotation. It's a quotation of a a piece of uh, graffiti uh, in that form, more or less, that uh, would uh, rear its head on the backs of stores in East Vancouver in the form of graffiti. It was never formalized. That was what was very interesting about it, right? There was never, um, and, and it's impossible even to source its origins, right? But, uh, we don't, we, no I, one claimed it? No one claimed it, and it was uh, something quite democratic. It was just there, and uh, I mean, it, it, it can be traced to um, the early 50s, maybe even to the late 40s. I'm, I suspect it had something to do with the uh, propensity of, um, of uh, Catholic schools in the area, uh, you know, because of the large Italian, Greek, and, and, and such uh, Filipino population there. And so, um, in 2010, at the time of the Vancouver Winter Olympics, they came up with a, a proposal which was quite radical for um, public art, which was that they asked artists to come up with an idea, but they, but they also asked the artists who came up with the idea to find a site for it, which is usually not the way public art works. Usually the site is given to you and then you mm -hmm. have to um, try to uh, reconcile your idea to the site. Right, site-specific. Right, but here say. it's like, I went, wow. And so, um, so I, I, I decided to quote that because it was also at a time, um, as you may know, that uh, Vancouver was becoming heavily monetized. A lot of Asian money coming in, transforming uh, what was for a very long time uh, a bit of a backwater city on the edge. Uh, you know, the nickname for Vancouver for many decades was called Terminal City, meaning it was like the end point of the railway, the end point of all kinds of things. And, it's such uh, a downer word though, it, terminal. Yeah, but I like it because it was uh -huh. about, um, terminal could also mean like the escape from the world. You had a lot of uh, American draft dodgers go up there mm -hmm. uh, during the Vietnam War. You had a lot of people who were, I can only characterize them as island people who just wanted to get away and live on some bucolic island. It was, of course, never quite as bucolic as they thought in terms of lifestyle, and um, and so on. And you had, um, you know, uh, literary uh, figures like Malcolm Lowry, right? He he lived out in a in a, in a shack in North Vancouver, mm -hmm. and so I think Terminal City is actually because of its multivalent su suggestive qualities. I think is actually quite quite accurate, and so. I did that at this point where Vancouver was uh, its its identity as a as a as this kind of city or village in the forest, which is also another trope. It was also a contrived narrative, anyways. Mm -hmm. You know that uh, 
blessed by nature and somehow detached from um, you know the uh, culture from the rest of the world it was never that it was always you know the forests were always being torn down the the fish was always being taken out the minerals were always being mined for a long time right and the uh, usurpation of native lands was always in progress so it was never this you know idealized you know idyllic idyllic uh, land and so and but but with the uh, you know, influx of a lot of um, Asian Chinese money, namely, uh, the city transformed and suddenly you, you had all kinds of boutiques, real estate uh, went through the roof in terms of values and, and uh, now it's, you know, it's basically as expensive, not more so than San Francisco. Except that unlike San Francisco, there's no real industrial base. It's just a lot of money being parked there. Right. Logging? Was it logging industry? Before it was logging, but the head mm -hmm. offices would not be in Vancouver. It would be in, mm -hmm. it would be Warehouser, which was in Seattle, or it'd be, all the major banks would be Toronto banks and things like that. So there's no real indigenous, um, you know, corporate uh, offices uh, located in Vancouver. And, um, but with the uh, influx of money coming in, particularly after the repatriation of Hong Kong to uh, Britain, you um, have this transformation and even a kind of crisis in terms of the self-identity of the city, right? Even though, you know, I never subscribed to the idea that, you know, Vancouver is like this jewel in the, you know, in, on the Pacific and surrounded by beautiful mountains and so on. And I'm not saying aesthetically that's not the case. It's, of course, the geography is spectacular. But I, I also think it became so kind of uh, fetishized, right, at the exclusion of real problems that was taking place in the city real traumas that's being visited by many, on many Vancouverites, right? It, and, 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 uh, and so there's a smugness to it. Um, it, it and so once uh, Vancouver started transforming into this highly monetized city where all kinds of new, uh, you know, urban uh, attributes were coming in like uh, specialized Belgian bakeries to, you know, specialized pet, grooming stores and all kinds of things. Uh, well, that was around 2010, mm -hmm. right? And so when it came in, you know, I basically, uh, I guess the work kind of, um, you know, was situated right at that fault line between East and West in terms of what is this, but not just the fault line of East and West uh, sides of Vancouver, but also fault line in terms of historical and also present and future, right? And so it became um, relevant, controversial, and very uh, yeah, very <laughs> relevant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent! Um, let's dive into your book a little bit. You are not afraid of controversy in your thinking or your writing. You sort of court it, I would say, because you have a um, an organized mind, and you're making connections always. Is no, that fair to say? No, no. That's, I don't think that's uh, uh, reasonable because I, I don't court, I don't try to court controversy. Okay. I, I, I don't mind um, dealing uh, with, uh, you know, subject matter which I think is important and, and that's left kind of uh, unsaid. Maybe that's a better way of framing it. That's a great way yeah. to frame so it. So I deal with a lot of things like, you know, the kind of hidden histories of the city, the uh, issues of, um, of uh, uh, subalterns and not, not 
being given voice in in all matters of the of the civic, and uh, I, I write about those types of subjects. You were the founding editor of a publication on Chinese contemporary art. Co-founder. Co Co-founder. Right. Um, and founding editor of the publication. I was founding editor, yeah, but co-founder. Yeah, yeah co-founder and founding editor. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, Chinese contemporary art Yishu. Mm -hmm. So what was your first editorial that you wrote for that? Because I know that's in the book. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it was, uh, I can't remember when I wrote that now, but I think it must have been close to 15, 20 years ago. And, um, it was during. It was. I have to say, it was during a time of uh, more optimism in terms of China, mm -hmm. right? Because now there's a odd return to uh, mm -hmm. the great Haldensman type of politics with mm -hmm. with uh, President Xi, right? Who's kind of uh, you know trying to reincarnate himself as the new Mao Zedong. So it's a bit wow. bit scary there now. Um, and uh, there was a, there was this sense that um, China was opening up at least even incrementally and would eventually follow the path of South Korea and, and Japan, but namely South Korea, which you know also had a, a big dictatorial uh, regime for a long time, a military uh, government, and then um, you know gradually uh, became uh, you know more uh, Western South democracy and so on. And so, I was interested in, um, in, 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 in the questions of, you know, what, again, what was not said and not announced in terms of Chinese uh, art, um, particularly, uh, you know, uh, the Republican period of Chinese art from the 20s to the 30s, or actually from 1919, which was the uh, May 4th uh, movement, and, um, and also, you know, I'm Chinese, right? So mm -hmm, <laughs> I'm, mm -hmm. I'm ethnically Chinese, and so part of it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, a kind of finding myself in that, right? Trying to rediscover myself. So part of it, I guess, was a vanity project, right? But um, a lot of it was also. Um, so I wrote about this kind of tr uh, moment of uh, trans great transition and flux in China uh, at a moment where it was, you know, there, there was a sea of construction cranes th throughout. Uh, the country. You know, at one time China had close to one-third of the world's construction cranes in operation. Well, I know they um, snarf up a lot of concrete too. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what I wrote about. I, mm -hmm. The editorial um, starts with, uh, you know, the uh, opium wars, right? The, the uh, corruption of the Qing dynasty, and so it starts historically, but it also talks about um, Greater engagement and, and uh, the you know necessity of recognizing that nobody, no country, no people can ever or should ever leave, live in isolation, and China was quite closed off for for, for quite a while. Right? It's and now it's uh, both open and closed. Right? But, <laughs> but I was I was interested in all those types of issues. Yeah. So, how often do you go to China now? Uh, well, I'm going there uh, next summer again. I'm going there to teach in Beijing for two weeks. But I was there, uh, I, t I, t I taught a course in China, um, in Beijing, uh, called Reimagining Tiananmen Square. Oh my goodness. Right. Um, so um, that was uh, a pen course, actually. And so I was there last uh, year, I guess it was. Um, 
in the 90s and 2000s, uh, I was there quite regularly. I think I've probably been in China maybe close to 100 times. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's a lot of air travel. Yeah. A lot of long well, I, I co-curated the show called Shanghai Modern, right, 1919, 1945. That was a historical show uh, about the, uh, you know, the uh, debates around modernity and the futurity of China. Uh, that opened at the uh, Museum Bülle Stuck in Munich and then traveled on to other German museums. Um, so I did that. Uh, so that required a lot of travel. Yeah. And, yes. and I also taught at the... Um, China Academy of Art in Hangzhou was one of the first um, Western, uh, um, you know, uh, professors there. You're bilingual then, I would assume. No, I taught in English. You taught in yeah, English? Yeah, I, te I teach, well, I, t I am bilingual, I speak French, right? <laughs> but that French? Wouldn't, that wouldn't help the situation. And I speak, uh, okay, not very good now, but Cantonese, but, uh, you know, the official dialect of Mandarin. But they had a, they had a translator with me. Uh, 24-7, basically. Wow. So, and I would imagine some of the students understood you in English. At that time, uh, the, uh, it was still a struggle. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I remember one of my, uh, on my, close to my departure date from Hangzhou, I uh, was to give a lecture at the um, high school for fine and performing arts. Uh, so the, they were basically children. They were like 14 to 16, 13 to 16 years old. And um, I uh, started to go there. They were put, put me in the uh, 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 limousine to drive me there. And uh, I said to the translator, I said, aren't you coming? He goes, oh, no, you, I, you don't need me for this. And so I went there, and uh, it was packed with you know, teenagers, this room, several hundred. And I, I sit down, and the, the boy comes up to me and says, how are you doing, man? Right? And I went... <laughs> And I remember thinking, wow, this is like, I can see this being the future of China. You know, these kids are, who are multilingual. And, right? So I was really at, when I was teaching Angel, I was really at this, this period of transition between uh, those who couldn't speak and, uh, and haven't traveled very much to those who spoke perfect English and was starting to travel. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. Mm -hmm. So your French must come from your European travels. I know that you've done things in Europe as well. No, my French was a project. Um, I self-taught myself French when I was in my 30s. To read the French theorists? No, well, partly that, but I, I received an invitation to uh, teach at the L'Ecole de Beaux-Arts, which is the, you know, the preeminent academy of fine arts in, in Paris. And um, the contract said, you know, you know, of course, uh, we expect you, you, we understand you'll be speak, teaching in English and we will supply a uh, translator and, and all that. And although many of the French students who understand, you know, some in English. And I wrote back in a very audacious way, which <laughs> I said, no, I'm going to be teaching in French. And I, I didn't speak a word of French. And, and they said, oh, you, you, this is just purely by... Um, I guess it was maybe even email. Yeah, it was, did they even have email? I'm not sure. Maybe maybe fax. And I said, uh, and they said, oh, we didn't know. Oh, great, you speak French. I said, no, I don't, but I will be speaking, in, I will be teaching in French. That's great. <laughs> so, did, they, did you get a reply to that email or text or uh, whatever it was? I can't fax? remember, but I remember <laughs> I had a, a big task in, uh, ahead of me. 
I created a very uh, immersive situation in terms of French. Much easier to do in Canada because there's French radio, French TV, and, and a lot of Quebecers who are all, and New Brunswick and even Manitobans who are all the country. And so I would find out um, a barista at Starbucks, say, uh, who was from Montreal and spoke, uh, was French speaking. And then I would always wait for that barista. Or I'd find a butcher shop and the person was like from Sherbrooke, Quebec, and, and, uh, or even from France, and uh, I would always go there to buy meat. And uh, I re refused to read anything in English. I only, uh, I subscribed to uh, the Le Monde et Le Devoir. And, uh, and I had a, a yeah, yeah, especially Le Monde, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had a, I was always listening to tapes. Oh, it was crazy. I, I had absolutely no life. I was totally, <laughs> but, but I can, I can, I have that type of personality. I can do that. Well, you made it part of your life, it mm. sounds like. You didn't mm. bifurcate it so mm. that, oh, now I'm going right. to you know, study French. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to immerse yeah. myself in yeah. French. So people would say, did you read this? And I said, no, I, yeah, I didn't read it because I'm only reading French newspapers. <laughs> um, I, uh, can I say one more thing about language? Yeah, because yes. I, So I started teaching in French. I came back and, and people said, well, who were... Uh, you know, language, they say, well, obviously you have a knack for it. And I always was bothered by that because I said, I don't have a knack for no language. And they said, well, you clearly do because you're speaking French. You understand it all now. And I, I said, that's only because I worked hard, right? <laughs> that basically shuts up people. I said, <laughs> I said, I work really hard at it. Yeah, there's nothing, there's no comeback. <laughs> there's no that. substitute. Yeah. All right. So... That sounds like a teaching moment. Speaking of being a teacher, you're yeah. out there, you teach at Penn. Mm, yeah. You know, that's a teaching moment. I, I think it is because I, I tell my son that too. I say, you know, you, um, he's, he, he's, sometimes he's bored with piano lessons, and I say, you know, I'm not, I don't expect you to be, uh, you know, a concert pianist, but I think you learn a little bit uh, every day and you work hard at it and you don't regret later on. And it's very hard to convince someone young of something down the road, right? I know how difficult that is, right? And, uh, and I say that to the MFAs, you know? I say, you know, uh, some of, obviously many of them uh, have the ambition of being artists in the art world, right? And I, I, I always keep it real. I always say, great, maintain the ideals that propel you uh, to make art, but also know that it's a lot of work and that to get from A to Z, I'm always tempted to say Z, from A to Z, you have to um, work. You have to work. And then uh, once you start working, at some point the project ends and suddenly you have a work you're proud of, right? And even if it's, if it's a flawed piece of work, you understand it deeply. And, and that re prepares you for the next one. Right? And uh, that's, I always, uh, you know, repeat that to students, you know. It's great life advice too, you know, not just when you're a student, but just life advices as well. So um, I want to finally wrap up on your new project. Before we started recording, you told me that you're writing a Hollywood screenplay. Well, I didn't say Hollywood. Oh. I, I said, I, I, I wrote a screenplay. I spent a lot of time uh, over the summer. It began in the spring. 
it issues from uh, a course I teach at Penn, a seminar course called The Chinese Body and Spatial Consumption in Chinatown, which is a um, seminar uh, that starts with, uh, you know, the development of ethnic enclaves, mainly Chinatowns, in, uh, starting with um, the uh, Limehouse uh, in London during the time of Charles Dickens and then moving on to uh, various Chinatowns in um, uh, North America, although uh, I do include a bit of um, Australia and New Zealand as well, and about how uh, representations of the Asian body was negotiated, renegotiated by, by, by Chinese, also Japanese, uh, through um, you know, different representational sy systems such as literature and cinema, and um, you know, and uh, how the uh, you know the, the, through of course the the terrible moments of anti-Sino sentiment uh, and um, the fear of the Asian through yellow peril, and then the kind of rehabilitation of uh, the Asian body um, in, in in the sense of um, the the good Asian, the good citizen, and so on, which was also highly racist because it was used as um, in comparison to uh, often uh, African American bodies or brown bodies, and as well, they were, see here's here's a good uh, brown body, or, or good yellow body, as opposed to a, a, a less good darker body, and, and so on, right? But of course, this is this is this kind of uh, comparative system that was that was exploited by dominating white bodies, and so on, so. The, the, the screenplay came out of that. It was also had something to do with the fact that I recognized that it was a subject. It was a, the film is about um, Chinese laborers in the 19th century in America, where it's centered on the uh, or, uh, Oregon Trail from Astoria, Oregon to Idaho City, Idaho in 1868. And uh, I had always thought there was never, it's such an epic story, and yet it was always background material. So you see, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Robert Altman's great film, mm -hmm. was a revisionist Western. Uh, you know, you see the presence of Asian work, uh, Chinese workers, but they're always in the background, mm -hmm. and so on. And I thought, wow, it's amazing. This topic has never been treated as a as a as a movie, right? So, so you're gonna you're gonna take care of that? Well, I don't know if I'll take care of it. it has, I mean, so far, it's uh, you know, I sent it out to some people and including a few who have an affiliation with uh, movie making and. and it's been incredibly positive, the response and stuff. But, um, so now I'm just revising it, right? Um, I mean, someone was interested in that, and they said, um, we'd like to see it. And uh, I said, well, I'm not, I'm not ready yet. I want to revise it. Uh, and when it's, re when it's truly ready, I will submit it. And um, I got a compliment back from them. They said, that's good, right? <laughs> because my sense is that people are so eager uh, you know, to get uh, people of influence to read it, uh, but I think it's a mistake unless it's, you're totally confident this is the finished product. Yeah. But so that's I, your work hard ethic. Yeah, yeah but I hope I hope it uh, to have it submitted um, before December. Wow, that's soon. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to wrap it up now. Mm -hmm. I I'm Roberta Fallon. I've been speaking with Ken Lum. Thank you so much, Ken, for speaking with us. And I want to talk, or I want to just mention your book, Everything is Relevant, Writings on Art and Life, 1991 to 2018. And it'll be available in, to pick it up 
Right. You, you can actually buy it on um, pre-order on Amazon now, and it will be uh, ready by early December, but the official launch of it will be in January um, because it's just very close to the Christmas period, and uh, it will be um, deemed as a 2020 issuance. But the book can be in hand through uh, Amazon by uh, early December. Okay. Run out and... You know, get your keyboards ready, everybody, to order that book. Pre-order it. Thank you, Ken, so very much. Always a pleasure, uh, Roberta. Thank you.